Again, as far as I can tell, was that this was a genuine work of the Spirit of God in that place. Still, my theological and religious spidey sense was on high alert. Make no mistake about it, I've been trained to be skeptical. This is what pastors and academics do. You discern why and how everyone else is wrong and you're right. <laughs> That's what we do. So of course, I was skeptical of Asbury's event. I'll tell you why I was skeptical, mainly because many years ago, when I was a youth pastor, I remember showing a VHS tape. Dimitri, if you don't know what a VHS tape is, you ask your mom, she will know. I showed a VHS tape to the students in my youth group about a revival that took place in 1970, where? Asbury. At Asbury College and Seminary. At a regularly scheduled chapel that did not end. And so I thought, okay, this is just deja vu. This is what happens at Asbury. Every now and again, people get emotional and just carry on for a while. Thank God there are people around like me to sort this stuff out, to give the real story behind ecstatic events, to really explain what happened when people born blind get healed, or at least appear to. Do you understand why texts like John 9 are difficult for people like me? Dare I say, like us? Oh, now, <clears throat> it's not too difficult when we just read it. It's an ancient text, uh, very much in a different past, in a different place. Uh, we can process that. We can say, Jesus miraculously healed a blind man. Praise God. But when the outrageous, unexpected, supernatural, and uncontrollable happens that isn't sanctioned by the normal order of worship and ecclesiastical order like it did in this story, well, then we get very uncomfortable. And we tend to look at it a bit sideways. One of the reasons we get uncomfortable with all of it is that it's a reminder that when you're in the business of God's kingdom come to earth, there's a profound lack of control. God is God. We are not. And God tends to do what He wants to do. Does that make you slightly nervous? If you ever want to see me squirm, then in the middle of worship, open it up for spontaneous testimonies across the <laughs> congregation. A good friend of mine, who sadly passed away a few years ago, absolutely loved to do this. Over the years, I began to wonder if he loved it or if he loved watching me squirm. He was just getting at me. He especially loved it, strangely, when people started rambling. You've heard this, right? They start rambling in the testimony, and they don't know when to stop, and they don't know how to wrap it up, and they just keep talking and saying, um, and carrying on. And he loved that because he thought, oh, they're just speaking from their heart. This is genuine, heartfelt expression, and he just felt a bond with that person. And I was dying. 
One time he opened up that opportunity in our service and a gentleman who had been attending the church only for a few weeks stood up and instead of staying right where he was, he walked over, grabbed a handheld mic and went up to the front and up to the top of the uh, platform stage, whatever you call it, and started sharing his message. And I thought I was gonna go into cardiac arrest, not least because I knew a bit about that man's past and it had involved a lot of hallucinogenic drugs. <laughs> we do like to be in control, especially when it comes to our religion and our religious expression. And this is true whether you are a Presbyterian or generations deep in the Wesleyan holiness movement like Asbury is. We all have our expectations for who God is and how he's expected to behave. I believe in the normal means of grace, chiefly prayer, preaching of the word, and the sacraments. I believe God works through those on a regular basis. Others pray for and look for spiritual revivalist events that bring something extraordinary to the people of God for a season. And for either group, experience outside of our norm uh, is difficult for us to process and believe that God is working there, out there. Could God be doing something at a place like Asbury? In that place? Through those people? Any of this sound like John 9 to you? Isn't it intriguing that John takes 41 verses to tell us this story? I wonder why he did that. In John 6, he devoted a very brief paragraph to Jesus walking on the water. Walking on the water. I want some more details about walking on the water. Tell us a little bit more there. What did you say to each other? How did you respond to that? How did it happen? Is this something that's open to all of us, perchance? But all John says is, Jesus walked on the water, the disciples were afraid, Jesus told them not to be afraid, we got in the boat, we arrived at shore. Moving on. Come on, John. But he isn't nearly as interested in that as he is in an extended discussion in chapter 9 about people who are skeptical about who Jesus is and the sort of work God decides to do in the world. The inquiry begins with a question I bet you've wondered about. Lord, who sinned that this man was born blind? The man himself? His parents? Maybe his parents were nearby. They weren't too far away. They got called into the council later. Maybe they overheard it. Maybe it was their way of saying, we know about you. Mm -hmm. I bet you've wondered, who said that this should happen to me? Why has this happened to me? To my friends? What have I done to deserve it? Right here in our little community, we've had heartache and tragedy and pain illness and broken relationships that have turned our lives upside down. 
And without a doubt, each of us, when the pain level is high enough, has wondered, maybe silently, what have we done to deserve that? I admit, it can be a difficult question, and you are not abnormal or a bad person for thinking it. So many people we know just have the sort of lives that can't seem to escape suffering. No matter what they do or what decisions they make, it just seems to follow them around. Last week I heard about a mom of four or five children, I can't remember exactly how many, right here in Portland, a number of years ago she lost her husband to cancer, only to discover recently that her adolescent son, under 12 years old, now has cancer, a very rare and difficult kind. Who sinned, Lord, that she should face such suffering? Did you notice that when Jesus responded to the question, he didn't really elaborate on very much? didn't give us all the whys and wherefores. What he said was, you think sin is the ultimate cause of this man's suffering? Sin does not have a final word here. God's glory overwhelms the brokenness of this sinful world, and God's glory here isn't about some narcissistic, narcissistic obsessive craving for attention. But the glory of God is the way the world is meant to be. Wholeness, shalom, beauty, perfection. And God, rather than eliminating all suffering and the possibility of suffering right now, immediately, chooses to redeem it and work in it and through it. Because the beauty of the work and glory of God in that pain is of far greater weight and significance than the suffering itself. Of course, if you're not connected to God, you don't understand any of that. But if you are, maybe you can see at times, even in pain, that the glory of God is much greater than that pain as real as that pain is. It's not so much that sin was involved in this man's blindness, but rather it's an opportunity for God to step into this moment, pull back the curtain, and show you something about himself and how the world really operates. You think you've got everything figured out and you understand how this world works, Jesus says? Let me show you what you're missing, God. The Inquisition continues, then, with the neighbors, and the argument centers on whether the guy standing in front of them, who can clearly see, is the same guy that used to be begging all the time. What happened to you? Guy put some mud on my eyes, told me to go take a bath, now I can see. That's it. Seems straightforward. Okay, either you're lying, or this is not the same guy that was blind. 
Incredibly. Even though all the irrefutable evidence in the world is right in front of them, no one can see it. No one wants to see it. Isn't it amazing how hard-headed and blind the neighbors were? These people. A man's parents get called before the Senate committee. Is this your son? Well, we know he's our son. We know he was born blind. That's really all we know. If you want to find out more, ask him. He's 21. He can answer for himself. So the parents of all people plead the fifth. Because, John says, if they came to the conclusion that Jesus was the Messiah, things might go sideways for them. So mom and dad threw Junior under the bus and said, um, ask him. So they do. The man gets summoned once again. And they say, look, itinerant faith healers aren't properly sanctioned by the church governing body. So we know this guy is a sinner. Give glory to God and admit that whoever did this to you is a sinner. Isn't that interesting, the contrast right here in this text between what Jesus sees as the glory of God and what the Pharisees claim as the glory of God? Jesus seems to think God's glory brings healing and shalom and wholeness without a need to condemn or blame. Even if we can't explain everything, or it doesn't fit so well into our theological box, the glory of God produces the beauty of God. <clears throat> For the Pharisees, not so much. The glory of God was tame, predictable, clear lines between right and wrong, good and evil, who's in, who's out. To see the glory of God for them was to affirm their own power, their position, and their way of doing things. The man, who interestingly isn't named, one of the greatest witnesses in the history of humanity, to the Savior, Jesus Christ, we don't know his name. Amazing. He says, look, I know my parents threw me under the bus. I know Uncle Bart and Aunt Mary and all my neighbors are at each other's throats about this. And I can't really tell you much about sin or justification or sanctification or theodicy or all those theological concepts. All I know is days ago, I was blind, and now I see. And their response? Start all over from the beginning and say it again. <laughs> By this point, the guy must know he's in a predicament. If he says the man is Messiah, he knows he's in big trouble. If he equivocates about his healing, and says, okay, yeah, I'm not really that beggar, then he will be seen as a lazy fraud who is trying to scam people out of their money by pretending to be blind. It's a tough spot. <clears throat> so he says, look, why don't you ask him? Maybe you want to be his disciples too. Well, if they didn't know this guy was a sinner before, now it's clear, because righteous people don't treat pastors like that. And they threw him out of the synagogue. 
that after such an amazing spiritual experience, he got thrown out of church. What a strange story. No one believes what is standing right in front of them. Maybe not so strange, really. Not long ago, the New Yorker published an article entitled, Why Facts Don't Change Our Minds. Could that really be true about us, too? That we're like the neighbors and the Pharisees? Could we possibly live in a world where the irrefutable evidence is right in front of us, and yet, like everybody in this story, since it doesn't fit into our assumptions of how we view the world, we would reject that evidence? I mean, I get it. I understand us. We're all educated, modern, sensible people. We perceive cause and effect in the world. We know that if someone claims to be pregnant, apart from sexual relations, they're lying. We know this. We know that resurrections are as rare today as they were in Jesus' day. We know that when the news headline says, woman dies on an operating table, goes to heaven, and returns to tell us about it, it's probably about anesthesia and nothing more. Mind plays tricks on us when chemicals are involved. Someone says, I don't know what to tell you, but as I sat in that prison cell, God spoke to me as plain as day. Before that, I had no interest in God. And now, I have no greater interest than in listening to Him and doing what he tells me to do. How quickly we are to dismiss it. Well, we'll see, we respond. Part of our problem is that it's the nature of miracles, at least as we think of them, to be an intrusion and disruption on the normal course of events we naturally and automatically resist something that doesn't stand up to our scientific and rational investigations. And I can't help but wonder why. Why would we be so quick to resist the blind man's healing? Why would we doggedly resist the plain and obvious evidence right in front of us and instead come up with all the alternative possibilities. Maybe John spent 41 verses on this story because he, because he knows what we're really like. I was on a business call this past week on a Zoom call. It was with one work colleague and two of our clients. During this call, suddenly one of them jumped up and went off camera for a moment. It's a bit unusual for him. And when he returned, he held up to the camera a flyer <clears throat> given to him by the person who was at his door, telling him that Easter was approaching and he needed to take the opportunity to listen to God. 
And then he started reading it to us. And it said, you can have hope for your future and not live in fear. How do you think they responded to this? He and his co-worker began laughing. Immediately. Regardless of how you feel about door-to-door -door evangelistic efforts, it's striking to me that neither one of them paused for even a second to consider what must have happened in the world that motivates a person to humiliate themselves at your doorstep in order to tell you that a poor, homeless, itinerant preacher who lived 2,000 years ago and was ex executed by the superpower of the day, and ever since then, billions of people have been straining to live in, with, and like that same person, matters. That was a run-on sentence, I'm sorry, it made sense to me. All of the evidence in the world, I wanted to say that, is right in front of you. And it doesn't change your mind. Not one bit. John 9. man standing right in front of him. No one took a second to consider the possibility that Jesus really did heal him. I guess maybe it would be too upsetting. I guess we'd have to reconsider everything we know about our world. That maybe the way we've been thinking about ourselves and our life is completely upside down and the consequences for our daily existence are revolutionary. I guess it means I need to be able to worship God in Asbury University Chapel, even though it doesn't look like mine. I guess I would need to admit that God is God and I am not. And so we just naturally resist that sort of thing. Maybe the disruption is too much. Maybe blindness is to be preferred. Imagine the political, religious, and theological disruption that it would have been to the Pharisees and to the synagogue life if they were to admit Jesus was the Messiah. Imagine the old Pharisee that had made all his money, remember the Pharisees loved money, made all his money on his wise and irrefutable interpretation of Torah, and Jesus comes along and says, you have heard it said, from Rabbi so-and-so over there, but I say to you, and this is the word of God. Imagine that. And so, they prefer blindness. Imagine what people would say about you and all those years of teaching if you dared admit that a blind beggar taught you what God was really like. The guy who, whose only defense was, all I know is I was blind and now I see. What would you do? Years ago, a friend of mine told me of his intentions to finish his studies and take his wife and newborn child to China in order to be involved in theological education and pastoral ministry. I was excited 
for the opportunity to talk him out of that. And I did what I considered a beautiful job of explaining all the practical and even theological reasons why you shouldn't do it. Think about your parents, I said. Your children. Have you noticed the political situation in China? Do you really think they need you that badly? I wasn't harsh, but I did my best. I'll never forget his response. Hopefully I won't. Smile, biggest smile. And he said something to the effect of, man, I don't know what to tell you. When I spent time there in service to the church in China, God did something in me. It changed my life, and I just can't get over it. And I should have praised God and prayed with Him and commissioned Him and hugged Him and been thrilled out of my mind. That was over 10 years ago. Last year, I connected with Him over Zoom. He's still there. And as He described His work in China with all of its trials, there came that big smile again. A smile like I've struggled to have over the years, radiating from his face. Hmm. Uh, maybe it shouldn't be the same answer for every person, but maybe. Maybe there are times when God breaks in and does what doesn't make sense to any of us. Lord, cure us of our blindness so that we may see and believe.